Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. So this is our second episode in February. It's February 28th, so it still counts as February. And our plan in this episode is to return to the conversation we've been having about the history of ideas of race. Yay. Hooray. We thought since we're at the end of February, we'll just declare this the end of our first season. So <laughs> beginning of season two starts now. So that's it is, our... It is arbitrary, so... That's okay. That's our explanation for why we're going back to the beginning. So we're going to start here by heading to Egypt of the pharaohs many centuries ago. We're starting at the very beginning because it is a very good place to start. I like the sound of music. But also because, let's be honest, we don't know what the ancient Egyptians thought about race. They didn't actually seem that concerned with the idea. But European colonial powers began to take great interest in Egypt uh, around the age of Napoleon. Partly it's because the French army was stuck in Egypt for a little while. And the huge numbers of artifacts and mummies and stuff like that the Europeans took out of tombs in Egypt, uh, not to mention the Rosetta Stone itself, of course, it started an Egypt craze in Europe and the United States. But it also created a bit of a chronology problem that ended up having a major impact on race science in the 19th century. That's right. We've previously talked about monogenism-polygenism debate in the 19th century on earlier episodes. That was our first season. And then when confronted with Egypt material, and when the first Egyptologists began to give estimates for the age of some of this material, many thousands of years older than anything that Europeans thought was possible, polygenists began to use that material to support their arguments about race. Yeah, in the early 19th century, according to the estimates of the age of the earth by some conservative religious leaders, the world could only be 6,000 years old. That was because of the very careful calculations of Archbishop James Usher, who was the Protestant leader in Northern Ireland in the 1600s. Um, they were scandalous at the time because Usher was using the scriptures pretty literally, synchronizing those with other ancient documents known at the time, and trying to show that the Catholic Church was untrustworthy since they didn't teach this stuff at all. So by the time that we get to the 19th century, geologists were already showing that the Earth was much, much older than that time frame that was allotted by Archbishop Usher. But as we repeatedly see in history, when scientists begin to challenge a religious idea about the age of the Earth that people actually didn't care that much about in the past, people all of a sudden start caring a lot. A lot. A lot. So the new stuff that came out of Egypt, it caused a craze because it was seen partly as attacking the older religious chronology. If, like Usher said, the earth was created in 4004 BC, and Egyptian artifacts were as old as 3000 BC. Right. What? Exactly. <laughs> the polygenists said that any depictions of race that they found in the tomb art of ancient Egypt and any differences in, that they could detect in the skull sizes that they were getting out of the tombs that all of this could have only happened within the first thousand years after the creation of the earth. In other words, there was too little time for racial differences to have occurred naturally. But surely, by the 19th century, even racist folks like good old Josiah Knott in Alabama must have realized the age of the earth was much greater than 6,000 years. I mean, we now know our species has been migrating and evolving for several hundreds of thousands of years, which is plenty of time for the superficial characteristics that we associate with race to have evolved through natural selection. But even then, they must have had some inkling of this. They did, uh, certainly, and not in particular was trying to fight against the biblical chronology and against biblicism in ev every sense. 
But in defense of racial slavery in America in the 19th century, what these polygenists said was that even among the ancient Egyptians, they could identify the Negro races. And these Negro races had always been servants and slaves, always distinct from and subject to the Caucasian in remotest times. This is a direct quote from a letter that George Glidden wrote about his finds in Egypt. They used Egyptian archaeology to support a hierarchical view of race with Africans on the bottom. But of course, if they knew their Egyptian archaeology the way we do now, maybe they would have figured out that slaves came in all colors in ancient Egypt and that slavery depended much more on politics and on warfare than on any concept of what we would call race today. This ancient slavery bore very little resemblance to the racial slavery that was being defended by the 19th century polygenists. 19th century polygenists, early 20th century anthropologists, and 21st century racial realists like Sarich argue that the art and writing of the ancient Egyptians demonstrate that they had a four-race system of human classification. This is a direct quote out of a book from 1910 on the history of anthropology, the Egyptians, whom they painted red, the Asiatics or Semites, yellow, the Southerns or Negroes, black, and the Westerns or Northerners, white, with blue eyes and fair beards. So where did this come from? Uh, what's weird about all this stuff is that it's, it's basically all coming from the same source. The vast majority of the information that anthropologists had about skin color in the 20th century was the same information that they were using in the 19th century. It all comes from the tomb of Seti I who was a pharaoh in Egypt in around the 13th century BCE. All right, so for some context, the 13th century BCE is about 1,000 years after the building of the Great Pyramids. 1,000 years after the long, building of the Great That's Pyramid. a long time. Yeah, it's a long time after. Uh, in fact, Seti rules between uh, King Tut, Tut in common, and then Ramses the Great. He's the guy that appears in the Bible telling uh, Moses that he won't let his people go. And that, all that stuff is happening about eight centuries before the ancient Greeks that we know of, like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. So this is a very, very, very long time ago. Mm. Um, the original art on the wall in Seti I's tomb is known as the Book of Gates. And the Book of Gates is separated into several sections. Each one is called a set of hours. So there, it's a Book of Hours inside of the Book of Gates. And even though it's stunning to see just how vibrant the colors are inside something that is staggeringly old, Today, most of the color from those panels that caused all this controversy about race has either been rubbed off, maybe by Egyptologists, or it's just worn away. Hmm. And inside, there is an, uh, an inscription over this one particular panel that caused all this uproar in the 19th century. Now, I don't know any Egyptian, I don't know any hieroglyphics, so I'm probably going to say this inscription wrong. Here it comes. But it says, the first are Ret, the second are Amu, the third are Nehesu, and the fourth are Temehu. That, that sounds good. Does that sound yeah. good? Did I do a good job? Yep. I totally think. Well <laughs> I don't done. Know what that means. Anyway, I have no idea what those inscriptions mean. I think Egyptologists now believe that they might refer to the groups of people on the wall, but they might not. The groups of people on the wall are grouped in groups of four except that there is amongst those groups of four another thing that we're pretty sure is the god Osiris. Those groups of four might correspond to ethnicities or nationalities, but we don't know. What we do know is that from what we can still see, they do have different skin tones, they have different hair colors, they have different hairstyles, and they have very different clothing from one another. They all appear in these repeating rows of figures. All of the figures, importantly, are the same height, and there's zero hierarchical 
arrangement to all this stuff. However, the story begins to change in the early 19th century when a military guy named Heinrich von Minatoli from Prussia decided that he really liked Egypt's stuff. He wanted to be the first Egyptologist, and he wanted to depict these drawings in a publication. But when he did it, he took the stuff in Seti's tomb completely out of context. In fact, he alters their skin tones to make them look more different from one another. And he only took one figure from each group of four depicted on the wall. And he even changed the height of them a bit when he publishes them. Yeah, and it gets worse. Probably the most egregious, we'll say. Example of this comes from Naughton Glidden and Types of Mankind. They borrowed this image from Minatoli and changed it even more and attempted to match each of these four supposed races to Blumenbach's races, which they called red, yellow, black, and white. The one they labeled red was probably the original Egyptian, but they made it look more Native American by changing its hairstyle. The yellow one was originally Minatoli's most white or light-skinned figure, but they made his skin darker, and they gave him an epicanthic eyefold, the eyefold that we associate with East Asian eyes. For the black figure, they exaggerated the lips and the eyes and the nose quite a lot um, to change his facial angle. And the one that they label white is the one that has, interestingly enough, the most elaborate clothing on. He's got like feathers coming out of his head and all these fancy robes and stuff. You can find this image now on the internet. Figures are labeled as now Libyan, Nubian, Asiatic, and Egyptian. And what's interesting is that in addition to the labels that are attached to them, the heights of each figure have changed so that guess which one is the tallest? The is one. it the white person? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So it all comes from the single source, but it continues to float around up through the 19th and 20th centuries and into the present. Since the ancient Egyptians created the first civilization known to most 19th century scientists, it was assumed that they must have been Caucasians living on the African continent. Since everyone at that point in time knew that Africans were incapable of civilization, and this was discussed in uh, several notable publications, including by Gobineau and by uh, Morton. On the basis of skeletal measurements, however, something that the 19th century scientists, Morton in particular, surely would have appreciated, Brace and colleagues pronounced in 1993 that Egyptians are Egyptians, and they were so in the past as well. More recent studies of DNA sequence information also confirm that, yep, the Egyptians are Egyptians. Amazing. But isn't that shocking? <laughs> As we discussed in our segment on race and genetics, there is nothing in our background species gene pool that divides up into four or five or three neat racial categories. And in fact, what you find is genes and skeletons that are indicative of the population that was around at the time of the ancient Egyptians and a slightly different gene pool based on comparisons to analysis of ancient DNA and recent DNA, slightly different gene pool with more African input in uh, modern Egyptian populations. So perhaps we shouldn't be surprised, but it sounds like ancient Egypt has been used and abused in many different ways by many different people all of whom are trying to make some sort of a biological race argument. Right. So the, the fundamental argument here, which we haven't even stated yet, I don't think, was if people as ancient as early Egyptians had concepts of race, then race must be a real thing, right? And what's really crazy is that as recently as 2005, Vince Sarich, in his book 
race the reality of human differences refers back to the supposedly racialized typologies of Naughton Glidden that were supposedly identified in this Egyptian tomb art. Supposedly. You are kidding me. Suppos- I'm using the word supposedly a lot. The idea is, is right, this, this concept hasn't gone away, but in the final analysis, there seems to be much less there than meets the eye, even though it gets deployed again and again and again and again to make this claim that races are somehow ancient. And natural. Oh, ancient and natural. Totally. Yeah. Okay, so fast forward a few centuries. Uh, we leave ancient Egypt, and we come to ancient Greece. And there is no country of Greece. There's just these polices. But there are these interconnecting points in Greco culture. So I want to start with a person called Hippocrates. Oh, never heard of him. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> well, the thing is, we don't know that there even was a person named Hippocrates. Fair. Um, it could be a family name. It could be a name of a cult within a cult. But that's totally beside the point. What, if there was a Hippocrates, he was part of this group called the Asclepians. Uh, the Asclepians basically oversaw healing temples that were all in, in these palaces all over what we would now call Greece. These temples were always located in a place that had access to clean water. And then it was also important to them that they were out of the way of the wind. Uh, environmental conditions were really important to them, in part because this was a medical system based on the four humor system. Ancient Greeks believed that people's humoral balance was affected by the environment. Fun fact, humoral medical systems are still the most common around the world. Really? Mm-hmm. That is a fun fact. Yeah. So this matters for ideas of race because there was a fundamental belief here that the environment is what shapes a basic constitution of a person. And that constitution could be changed whenever the environment changes. This is extended to all ideas about human difference generally, including ethnicity or what we might call race. So Hippocrates and the Hippocratean tradition writes about how there were essentially two major divisions of humans. Joe, what were those called? Physic and apoplectic. So these two major divisions, what's different about them? Right, so they had different physical constitutions. They had different personalities, supposedly. The uh, thistic was supposed to be phlegmatic, for instance. Which meaning, means what? Meaning th- that person has an excess of phlegm. So they cough bodies. a lot? Right, yeah, they cough a lot. Do <laughs> they just drink a lot of <coughs> cough syrup, or yeah. how does that work? Yeah, They're slackers. Yeah, they're, sl- they're, they're the sort of lazy ones, and the <laughs> apoplectic are kind of the back then type A people, <laughs> you yeah. might say. Oh, yes. so they right? had the, type A the, and like, type B. The energetic, yeah. you know, like get up and do things. They're the people ones who get who, things done. They're the ones who have too, an excess of blood. They have too much blood. Blood, blood is hot, so they have an excess of blood. Phlegm they is cold, sanguine. and so the thysic have an excess of cold, and that makes them sluggish and kind of lazy. So that's how that division worked out. But the point was they had different physical constitutions, different weaknesses and strengths, different propensities for illness, and different behavioral characteristics, like personality characteristics. But and all of it's based on the environment. Right, but they could be altered through healing and through environment. So it, was, it wasn't as though those were permanent conditions. <laughs> Jim's laughing because I always do the take-home thing. The take-home point here is human difference existed. People thought different groups of People acted in different ways based on their physical constitution, but anyone could be either one of those things. They could be thysic or apoplectic. You could be either one of these things, and it was based on environment, not on some inborn characteristic. And where you lived. Right. And it was not ethnicity or race that determined that. So the the one Hipp- Hippocratic treatise that comes out that directly deals with this is called On Airs, Waters, and Places, 
and on airs waters and places specifically says your geography matters if you live up a mountain it's different than living in a valley if you live in a dry place it's different than living in a wet place right so environment not race but if we're going to talk about science and race and greece we absolutely have to talk about aristotle so jim what did aristotle think about race not much to make a long story short. But Aristotle thought about everything. <laughs> yes. Why didn't he think uh, about race? Human variation, like every division of science today, has some sort of track back to Aristotle, obviously. He had his fingers in so many different pies. Uh, he did, in fact, have a scheme for dividing people into different types. In Aristotle's politics, he divides people into two categories. He says, from the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. In other words, you have slaves and non-slaves. And this is a phenomenon that he sees as coming from birth. But are these slaves and non-slaves, is that connected at all with a race or ethnicity? Absolutely not. He has no concept of race or ethnicity that's embodied anywhere in his writings that I can find. So I think that one of the ideas that sticks around the longest of Aristotle's is definitely talked about in the Middle Ages, it's even talked about in the 19th century, is the, the great chain of being idea. What does that mean? The great chain of being comes out of his History of Animals book, part of his series on, on uh, science and in particular what we would think of today as biology or zoology. In this, he saw nature as stretching in a great chain with the lowest parts of the chain coming in the form of minerals and then plants and then animals. Now, that may sound familiar to you in a little bit when we talk about Linnaeus because Systema Naturae, he comes out with a system of classifying minerals, plants, and animals into one great system, and this is all owing back to his debt to Aristotle and this idea of the, the great chain of being. So cool. where were humans in this great chain of being, Joe? So humans are at the top, but they're not really subdivided into groups at all in the great chain of being. It's in his political writings that he talks about this sort of rulers versus ruled, but that's the as fine-grained as he ever gets in his distinction of human groups, isn't it? Uh, yes, and, and you have to remember when he's, when he's talking about the slaves, the category of individuals who must be ruled, it consists not just of those who are born into it because he feels they have some lesser capacity for intellectual work, for being able to rule others. It also includes a political category of individuals. So this isn't just those born into slavery, it's also those captured in war and suffering political misfortune. So uh, I've heard that the term Celt is somehow wrapped up in all this, is that right? Yeah, so the, the idea of Celts doesn't come about until almost two centuries after Aristotle, by the time that the Romans were starting to gobble up more and more land. Uh, in, in Alexandria, which was one of the great places of learning on planet Earth at the time, there's a guy named Strabo. And Strabo actually makes this, I don't think it's really racialized. He basically says there's two kinds of people on the Earth. Instead of doing um, Aristotle's very nuanced version, he says there are the civilized, and then there are, are these people we call the Keltoi, which just means barbarians. But of course, Julius Caesar and others will begin to call all the people that they recognize as uncivilized Celts. And that becomes, a, I guess, a kind of a racial hierarchy, but I'm not sure whether we should even call it a racial hierarchy. But anyway, the point is, right, we all know that there was slavery in ancient Greece, 
but as far as we can tell, it was not particularly racialized at all. Slaves came from all kinds of groups, as Jim said, political prisoners. Basically, anyone who was not a Greek could be a slave, and some people who were Greek could also be slaves, right? Pretty much. Pretty much. And was there um, an idea about how you undo slavery in Greek and Roman times, or was it, you know, because you're born into the people who are supposed to be ruled, you are always in that caste? Well, we have records, certainly, of people who were released or released themselves from slavery. So slavery was not the sort of permanent caste, or at least we don't think it was. It was not intergenerational, the way that racial slavery came to be viewed in 19th century America, for instance. Yeah, so certainly not intergenerational. And it was even possible to buy or fight or even study one's way out of slavery in ancient Greece, as far as we know. So race, very different. Slavery, very different. I, I thought these ideas were really ancient. I guess they're not. We're going we're gonna to fast forward again some, some more years to look at biblical concepts of race or lack thereof. In addition to the Egyptian and Greek ancient concepts of how to divide humans up and ideas about race, the Jewish tradition also had ideas about how to divide people up. Now, this doesn't have much to do with race. They don't have a real hierarchical system. But when the uh, Talmud gets published finally a few centuries A.D., they have people divided into two categories, Jews and Goyim. But of course, in the 19th century, if you're going to talk about the major Jewish contribution to the, the conversation, what you're talking about is the Old Testament of the Bible. And a lot of these race concepts seem to have something to do with what happens in Genesis chapter 9, especially verses 18 through 25. So this is the story about what happens to Noah and the sons of Noah after they get off the ark. Do you guys know the story? Yes. Vaguely. It's fantastic. I heard it in my childhood. So the story is weird. Noah and the kids and everybody, the floods go down, the boat is on the mountain now, and they get out. And I think the Bible says the very first thing that happens is that Noah decides to grow a vineyard and then gets Sounds drunk. Sounds logical to me. And then gets drunk off the wine. Also logical. I've never grown a vineyard, but I think it takes a really, really, really <laughs> long time to grow a vineyard and then to distill the grapes. and then. To anyway, but somehow all this happens really fast, and Noah falls asleep in his drunkenness, and one of the sons, Ham, discovers his dad in the tent, naked and drunk and passed out, <laughs> leaves the tent to tell his brothers. Shem and Japheth come back in there. They, they, they get mad at Ham. They cover up Noah. And then Noah curses Ham's son, Canaan, and says that Ham's son, Canaan, is going to be a slave to his brothers. Now, by the time we get to the 19th century, especially in the United States, that passage right there is interpreted as the origins of three human races and the justification for why people from Africa who are supposed to be the descendants of Ham, should be permanently slaves to the descendants of Japheth, who are supposedly the people who populate Europe. But, of course, there's no mention in the Bible at all of skin color or the idea that Ham's descendants would have actually been in Africa. There's right? zero evidence for any of this stuff happening in that way at all. Uh-huh. Noah really held a grudge. This becomes a, a sort of dominant way of understanding scripturally, of understanding the origins of race and the justification of slavery. It's supposed to have these ancient roots, but as we've already talked about today, and all the other ancient sources at the time, there aren't any kinds of concept of race, 
and slavery doesn't really tie at all to race in any of these ancient societies, and it doesn't seem like it is the case in Judaism either, even though it's interpreted by American Christians as if it does. It's all post hoc interpretation, though. Completely. I think there are, there's got to be some other interpretations of race before we get to, let's say, Europe in the Middle Ages, right? Sure, yes, there must be. So I've heard that in what was called the Islamic Golden Ages, the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries, that there was at least there some concept of race that we would recognize. Is that right, Joe? So Al-Jahiz was an Arabic writer. Um, who also wrote about sort of the environmental nature of human difference, not terribly different from what we see in the Greeks. Um, his book, which translates to the Treatise on Blacks, which was written in, a, in the ninth century, says can that... Can you give us the Arabic? I could try. Risalat Mufakarat al-Sudan ala al-Bidan. Very good. The Treatise on Blacks, written in the ninth century, claims very specifically that dark-colored skin exists because of the environment. So is there anybody out there who thinks that race is natural and ancient? Well, there wasn't back then. It seems like there aren't any ancient concepts that suggest that race is a permanent biological feature of humanity. The closest I think that we get might be some of the stuff that the, the Greeks thought, but that's it. Right. It's all environment or nationality maybe or airs and waters, and whether you live on a mountain or, or not. Or humorous, yeah. So where does this idiotic idea of race come from then? I guess we'll have to explore that on a future episode. To be continued. This has been Speaking of Race, and I'm Eric, the historian. I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. And I am Joe, the cultural anthropologist. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again soon. Check us out on Facebook and leave us comments if there are things you'd like us to discuss more in the future. Thanks. Thanks.